listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Go ahead and take your seats. Welcome once again to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad that you're with us this morning to worship the Lord and to study His Word. You guys having a good week? I, I've been looking forward to this week because it's uh, bye week for the Broncos, which means they can't lose, which is really, really nice. So at least it won't be a bad week, right? But uh, please open with me in your Bibles to the book of First Peter. First Peter, it's in your New Testament. So uh, one of the general epistles. So it comes, uh, it goes in this order. You got Hebrews. Then you got James, then you got First Peter. So if you find Hebrews, one of the bigger books in your New Testament, go to Hebrews and just go to the right two books. Hebrews, James, First Peter. And that's where we're at, First Peter. Chapter three, we're in a series right now where we've been studying verse by verse through this letter from Peter to the Christian church at his time and of course from God to us. And so we're in chapter three as we're studying uh, consecutively through these verses and through this book. And we're going to begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from chapter 3, verses 8 through 18. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake... You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we come to it this morning, Lord, we desire to come with just humble, open, receptive hearts. Lord, make us, we pray, receptive to your word and responsive uh, to your word. So Lord, we pray that all of these things that you have to say to us, Lord, may we hear them, may we understand them, may we receive them, and may they be put to practice in our lives for your glory and for our good and for your work through us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever been wronged by someone? You don't have to raise your hand because I know that that's all of us, right? Have you ever been wronged? Have you ever felt that you were slighted by someone or someone, you know, did you wrong or, or hurt you? Have you ever had a sharp disagreement with someone where you believed that you were in the right and they were in the wrong? At some point in your life, you are going to face a situation like that, and I'm guessing that all of us have uh, faced many situations like that. But at some point in your life, whether if you haven't already, you will, at some point you will be on the receiving end of what you feel is injustice and pain and hurt, uh, hurtful actions on, on the part of someone else. At some point in your life, you will find yourself in a conflict or a disagreement where you believe that you're right and the other person is wrong. 
And what do we do in those situations? I mean, this is so practical, isn't it? This is something that we all deal with all the time. So what do you do, do in those kind of situations? How should we respond in those situations where we feel that we have been wronged? Well, here in 1 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians about how to deal with conflict and how to respond when somebody wrongs you. And what Peter has been saying throughout this letter, what he's been doing throughout this letter, in every situation, every issue that he talks about, he is pointing us back to Jesus. He's pointing us back to Jesus over and over. So whether he's talking about how to live in your marriage, whether he's talking about how to respond or how to relate to your boss or to the government or to any authority in your life, in every situation, very practical, real-life situations that he's been talking about, in every case, what he does is he points us back to Jesus. But here's the thing. He doesn't just point us to Jesus as our example. Because a lot of people would say, yeah, Jesus, you know, there's actually a word for this in theology. We say, Christus exemplar. It means Christ, our example. But we, we would say, and Peter would say, Jesus isn't just your example. He's more than that. He's also the one who gives you the power to, in this case, be right and do right even when you are wronged. So he's not only our example, but he is our power to do these things. Peter's talking about real life situations, and he's showing us how the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done to save us and to bring us to God, how that empowers us to live differently. The gospel empowers us to live differently in a way that leads to true joy. And as we journey through this life on our way to our ultimate home, our heavenly home. The title of today's message is How to Be Right When You're Wronged. How to Be Right When You Are Wronged. And there are three key things that Peter points out to us in this passage that we're going to see as we walk through it. We're going to see three key things. So this is our outline. Number one, the test the test of love. Number two, the paradox of the Christian life. And number three, the power to do these things. So the test, the paradox, and the power. Let's start by talking about the test. First of all, some context for you. Peter is writing to Christians who are spread out throughout the Roman Empire. And the occasion for him writing this letter is that in the year 64 AD, there was a great persecution that began in Rome and then radiated out from Rome to the entire Roman Empire in which uh, Christians were being persecuted. They were, their homes were being plundered. They were being attacked. Some of them were being killed even. And Peter was living in Rome at this time, the epicenter for this great persecution. And he knew that this persecution was going to spread out like when you throw a rock in a lake, right, in the ripple effect and it spreads out from Rome. And so Peter's writing from the epicenter of this persecution in the midst of this difficult situation. And he's writing to people who either are suffering and have suffered or who are about to suffer. And he wants to write to them in the midst of this situation and remind them of the hope that they have in Jesus because of what he did and who he is. The hope that we have because of what Jesus did for us. But he also wants to talk about how we are to live in light of the gospel in the face of every situation, even the most difficult situations that life might bring your way. And throughout this letter, Peter has been reminding us, and by the way, our title of our series is Pilgrim's Progress, because throughout this letter, Peter has been reminding us that if you are a Christian, to be a Christian is to be a pilgrim and a sojourner here on this earth. What that means is that this world is not our home. In Jesus, we have received citizenship in heaven. 
And for us as Christians, right, this world is no longer our true home. We're just passing through. This isn't our final destination. We're on our way to our true home, our final destination that awaits us where things will be right, finally, because of what Jesus did for us to redeem us. And yet, though our hope is in heaven, here's the thing, our feet are here on the earth, aren't they? So our hope is in heaven, but our feet are here on the earth. And what that means is that God has a purpose and a calling for your life here and now. If he didn't, he would have taken you out of here already. But the fact that he's left you here means this, he has a purpose and he has a calling for your life. Your life here matters. There are things that he wants to do in you and through you, through your life here on earth. There are people who he wants to reach through you so that they will know his love and grace also. There are people, you know, who God wants to bless through you. So to be a Christian is to understand this, that you are a sojourner, but you're not just a sojourner, you're a sojourner on a mission. So to be a Christian is to be a sojourner on a mission. You're here for a limited amount of time. This isn't your final destination. This world is not where your hope lies. But for the time that you are here, it's very important. God has a very important mission and calling. You are on assignment. And so having that mentality, those two things, understanding that you're a sojourner, but you're on a mission, that absolutely changes the way that you live. See, it means that this world is not your home, but the way that you relate to this world is not as a tourist. It's not as a prisoner but it is as a missionary, not as a tourist, not as a prisoner, but as a missionary, right? A tourist, when you go somewhere as a tourist, you don't put down roots, you don't make connections, you don't invest in that place long-term because you know that on Thursday, you're gonna get on a plane and go back home, right? When you're a prisoner, you can't wait. You're just biding your time, you know, counting the days until you can get the heck out of here. But no, we're not here as tourists. We're not here as prisoners. This, this world is not a prison for us, no. This world is not our home, but we are here as missionaries. That's what Peter wants us to know. And throughout this letter, Peter has been speaking to us about how to live as missionaries in this world. And he begins this section in verse eight by saying this. Finally, which is kind of funny because we're still only in chapter three. Such a preacher, right? Like, this is my last point, maybe, right? So finally, uh, in verse eight, he says, all of you have unity of mind. Have unity of mind. So when it comes to how Christians should relate to one another, Peter says, have unity of mind, or as some of your translations say, be of one mind. Be of one mind, all you guys together. How do we do that? How do we be of one mind? How do we have unity of mind as a diverse people? It's super easy. You guys, you know what you have to do? Here's how you do it. Wherever you and me disagree, you just have to change your mind, right? So there you go. And then, then we'll have unity of mind, right? Because I'm right and you're wrong. So if you and I disagree, simple, pro- simple solution. You change your mind and think what I think, and then we'll be of one mind. Problem solved, you're welcome, right? Now, isn't that how so many of us think? Isn't that how so many of us function? Yeah, sure, I'd love to be of one mind with all these people, as long as they change their mind and they share my opinion. Then we can all be of one mind. But otherwise, of course not, because they're stubborn and uh, they need to do what I think, right? See, it's easy to be of one mind with people who think just like you, people who act just like you, people who you even like. It's easy to be of one mind with people that you like. Here's the real test, because that's, that's our first point, isn't it? The test. Here's the real test. The real test comes when you have a conflict or a disagreement. You can't even talk about Christian love until we talk about conflict. See, see what does it mean to be of one mind? One mind, the, the mind that we are all to have. Whose mind? My mind or your mind or somebody else's mind? No, there's one mind that we are to have. It's what Paul the Apostle calls the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. So I'm not looking to, to force my mind on you and you're not 
saying, hey, you have to have my mind. No, we're both saying, you and me both need to share one mind, the mind of Christ. Paul the Apostle says this in Philippians chapter two. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in all of you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to explain what that mind was like. And Peter does that same thing for us here too. But let me just say this. This is why we study our Bibles, right? This is why we need to be in the word so we can get to know the mind of Christ as much as possible so we can conform to it and have it. And so Peter goes on in the rest of verse eight to describe to us what it will look like for us to have the mind of Christ. And here's what he says. The mind of Christ is characterized by these things. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You know, think about an orchestra. In an orchestra, you have a lot of people playing different ways, different instruments, but they're all playing the same piece of music. They're all in harmony. Think about a choir. You know, with a choir, you have diverse voices, everybody singing with their own tone, with their own voice, and yet they're singing the same piece of music. They're in harmony with each other. That's what we're talking about. So when Peter says, be of one mind, he's not talking about uniformity. He's talking about unity. There's a difference between unity and uniformity. And he's telling us, I want you to be unified, even if you're not uniform. See, it, it means that as Christians, we are to be committed to each other in brotherly love. That's what he says, brotherly love. So that means we're committed to each other, even when we have conflicts and when we don't see eye to eye. Here's what we do. When we have a conflict, we don't give up on each other. We don't throw up our hands and quit, right? When you have a conflict with someone, you don't just take your ball and go home. But that, that's, the, that's the tendency of so many of us. It's the tendency of our culture. It pushes us to do this and respond these ways. Throw up our hands. I quit. I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm through with you. You offended me. I'm out, right? I'm taking my ball. I'm going home. Rather, look at what Peter says in verse nine. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. See, Jesus told us this. He said, all the commandments, all the commandments in the Bible they're all summed up in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On those two things hinge all the law and the prophets. Two things, love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. Super easy to do, right? But you know when it's hard? You know when it's hard to love your neighbor? When you feel that your neighbor has wronged you. When you feel that your neighbor, when you have a disagreement, when you have a conflict. See, it's easy to love people who love you. That's easy, right? The test, the test comes when you have a conflict, when you have a disagreement, when you don't see eye to eye, when you feel that that person has wronged you. See, it's easy to be committed to people who are nice to you. It's easy to be committed to people who agree with you. The great challenge to loving others comes when you feel that you've been wronged or when you feel that somebody else is wrong. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter six? He said this, if you love those who love you, Whoop-de-doo, right? That's, that's a, my own translation, right? If you love those who love you, well, golf clap for you, right? Like, congratulations. Everybody does that. There's nothing special about that. Everybody loves people who agree with them. Everybody gets along with people who agree with them. Everybody who loves people who treat them well, there's nothing different about that. There's nothing special about that. The worst people in the world do that. The real test comes when you have a conflict, how do you respond in those cases? That's when we, we need to talk, right? You say, you know, for example, you know, if I say, hey, you've wronged me or I disagree with you and now I'm done. I'm out of here. Goodbye forever. Where is the love in that? There, there isn't. Where's the commitment to relationship? 
If, if whenever you're faced with a conflict, you just bail. The attitude of, of throwing up our hands, of saying, I'm out of here. It's so common in our culture, our modern culture here in America. You know how it's been described? The age we live in has been called the age of outrage, right? A cult, we have a culture of outrage. People are always, you know, what's the thing that we're outraged about this week, right? We're so quick to get upset and write people off. And as a result, our society has become fragmented, hasn't it? We no longer talk to each other because you're like that and I'm not talking to you anymore and I'm out of here and I'm gonna go hang out with these people, right? Our society's become fragmented and polarized. You know, one, there's this thing in online gaming. I'm not an online gamer, but somebody was telling me about this. So uh, online gaming, this thing called rage quit, right? Some of you might know what that is. Like, so you play these big online games. You have a lot of people playing together online. And so what happens, somebody rage quit means that somebody like gets mad at somebody else on the team and they just quit and they shut all down the whole game. And then everybody who's logged into that game automatically gets booted out because the person who organized it, um, you know, got mad and left. And so nobody can play anymore. And it's so common, right? In our society, it has, it's so common that it has a name. It's called rage quit. So something happened and you don't like it. So you quit. Right? So listen, real Christian love isn't even put to the test until there's a conflict, until there's a dispute. Real Christian love isn't even put to the test until there's a dispute. See, what makes the love of God so unique? Think about this. What makes God's love so unique? Here's what it is, that he loves us in spite of our sins, that he's committed to us in spite of our flaws and failures, in spite of our rebellion. What makes the love of Jesus unique is that when we were his enemies, Christ loved us and died for us and gave his life for us to serve us. See, that's the love that we've received. And that's also the kind of love that we've been called now to show to others in Jesus' name in the world. So that, that's our first point here. The test, the test. See, it's when you have a dispute, when you have a conflict, when you have a difference of opinion, when you feel like you've been wronged, that's when you're put to the test. How will you respond? How will you respond? Remember, Remember how relevant this would have been to the people who originally received this letter, the original recipients. They were wronged, weren't they? By the government, by their peers in society, by other people in their community. They were wronged because of their faith. And we even get the impression that there were some conflicts within the church, which by the way, is not a surprise. Anytime you get flawed people together, even flawed people who are pursuing Jesus, you are going to have conflicts and disagreements. And so how do we respond when love is put to the test? How do we respond when love is put to the test? Peter tells us when it, when it comes to these kinds of things, conflicts, disputes, disagreements with other Christians, here's what we do. We stay unified. We stay unified. Here's what he tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. I love this phrase. He says, be devoted to one another in love. Think about that phrase, be devoted to one another. Devoted, right? Committed. I love that. It's an attitude that says, I'm not giving up on you. I don't like what you did. I disagree with you, but I'm devoted to you. Even if you're like a porcupine and every time I try to hug you, you stab me, right? I'm not giving up on you. I'm not going away. Rather than judging you, I'm going to respond with what? With sympathy. That's what he talks about, with sympathy, right? If you revile me, I'm going to bless you. And when it comes to people in the world who aren't Christians, what do we do? We're committed to them as well. The people who don't follow Jesus, we're not going to give up on them either. As so Sojourners on a mission, here's what we do. We don't give in to the world, but we also don't give up on the world. We don't give in to the world, but we also don't give up on the world. So we're gonna keep on loving. We're gonna keep on blessing. Even if they revile me, we will bless them still. Why? 
Because there was a time in my life and in your life, if you're a believer, there was a time in my life when I was far from God and I treated God with contempt. I treated him as if he was my enemy. And yet, how did he respond to me? He loved me. He blessed me. He reached out to me. And now I get the privilege of doing that for other people and towards other people in his name. Do you know how to do that? Look again at verse eight. It says, with sympathy. Sympathy, right? Compassion. A tender heart. It means this, you understand this, this basic principle that hurting people hurt people. You know that, right? Hurting people hurt people. And so when you, when you look at someone in your life who's hurting you, you, you have sympathy, compassion, a tender heart. You say, you know what? I don't know what it is, but there must be something going on in their life that's causing them to act like this. Maybe I just need to pray for them, have mercy on them, be tenderhearted towards them. I don't know what they're going through, but maybe there's something and I'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt. See, that takes humility, which is the last thing he mentions that list, doesn't isn't it? Humility. Humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. It, it's, it means not being obsessed with your rights and what you deserve and making sure that everybody gives you exactly how you feel that you deserve to be treated. It means taking on the posture and the position of a servant who's there what? To do what? To get underneath other people and lift them up and help them succeed and move forward. See, Jesus told us that that, taking a posture of a servant, getting underneath people, lifting them up, that is the key to true greatness. And that is what Jesus himself modeled for us. See, here's the thing. If every time you have a conflict with someone, you just give up, you leave your job, you leave your church, you stop talking to those family members, you, right? If every time you have a conflict, you bail, right? Rage quit and you, you're just, I'm out. You know what will happen? You will not grow. I'm not kidding. You will not grow. You will not grow. And here's why. Because you will not grow in love unless love is put to the test. And love isn't put to the test until you have a dispute and a conflict. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I love this quote in his book, The Four Loves. Here's what he said. He said this. To love at all is to be vulnerable. To love at all is to be vulnerable. If you want to make sure that you never get hurt, here's what you should do. Never love anyone. If you want to avoid getting hurt, then fill your life with hobbies and avoid all entanglements. Lock your heart up safe in the casket of selfishness. But in that casket, your heart will change. It will not be broken, but it will die. To love is to be vulnerable. So this is a test. When you're wronged, when you have a disagreement, when you have a dispute with someone, what will you do when love is put to the test, how will you respond? Peter encourages us, here's how. Have the mind of Christ in you. Have the mind of Christ in you. Be committed to people. Refuse to pay evil for evil. Let God deal with them and you focus on loving. Isn't that freeing? You don't have to be the one to make everything right and be vindictive and, and make sure that everything is, is done, you know, that you get what you deserve. You can leave that to God and you are free to love radically and freely because real Christian love isn't even put into action until there's a dispute. Okay, let's talk about the next thing. So that's the test. Now let's talk about the paradox. Peter says at the end of verse nine, if you do this, if you bless those, those who hurt you, if you love those who aren't lovable, then you will, he says, obtain a blessing. You will obtain a blessing. 
In verses 10 through 12, Peter quotes from Psalm 34. He quotes from Psalm 34, and he's using that psalm to describe what this blessed life looks like, the blessings that come from not seeking revenge, but doing the right thing even when you're wronged. And basically, here's what this psalm says in that that first part of it. He says this, If you will turn away from evil and do good, if you will turn away from evil and do good, then you will love life and see good days. You will love life and see good days. In other words, it's not just for the other person's sake. It's not just for God's sake, but it's for your own sake. If you want to love life and see good days, then don't hold on to bitterness. Love even when you've been hurt. And Peter sums up this principle in verse 13. Here's what he says. Now, who is there who will harm you if you're zealous for doing good? Who will harm you if you are zealous for doing good? So what Peter's doing here, he's laying out a principle something that is generally true. Nine times out of 10, if you do good, then your life will go well. If you treat people well, people will treat you well in return. This is like a truism or like we might... We might call it a principle. You know, Peter's speaking like the writer of the Proverbs here, right? Giving principles for life that are generally true. Nine times out of 10, that is what is going to happen. Except, of course, when it doesn't. Except when it doesn't. That's the exception. So Peter's speaking, again, like the writer of Proverbs. Who will harm you if you do what's right? Who will harm you if you do what's right? And here's what's so interesting about this. Remember, again, this is a principle. And and with every principle, there are exceptions. And here's what's so interesting. Peter is talking about this principle to the very people who are experiencing the exception. They are the exception. They are the one time out of 10 when they are doing what is right. They're doing what is good. And they are being treated badly in return. The people he's writing to are living out the exception to this rule. And he still tells them the rule. I think on one hand, it's because he says, hey, look, this rule, I know there are exceptions, but in general, come on, keep living it out. Don't become jaded. Don't become cynical. Keep doing this. But here's the thing. He's writing this to people, and he lays out this principle, but they themselves are the exception to the rule. They're like, wait, we are doing good and, uh, and not doing evil. And yeah, people are harming us. Like, that's the exact situation we're in. The book of Proverbs is full of these kinds of of principles, right? There are things that are generally true because there's an order and a working to the way that God made the world and the universe to work and, and human nature, right? There's cause and effect. Things like this, like Proverbs says a lot of times, if you're lazy, then you will be poor. If you will, if you're lazy, then you will be poor. But is that always true? No, there are exceptions to that, right? Generally, that's true. But are there exceptions? Yeah. Some people work really hard and they're still poor. Some people are are lazy and they're not poor, right? So there are exceptions. Or how about this one? Raise up a child in the way they should go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. Or how about this one? Uh, Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. These are principles. They're generally true. But are there exceptions to these rules, to these principles? Are there occasions where somebody raises up their child in God's ways, but when the child is grown, they turn their back on God? Yeah, that happens. Are there times when someone is generous and gives and and they're fair and they do what's right, but people take advantage of them and they end up losing everything? Yes, that happens. Again, we need to understand the difference between principles and promises. Principles and promises. It's really important to understand that difference in the Bible because here's the thing. If you take something which is a principle, but you take it as a promise, and then you experience the exception to that rule, then you might come away feeling like God hasn't kept a promise, which wasn't a promise to begin with. It was a principle. 
right? You might feel that God's word isn't true or that God didn't hold up his end of the bargain or do what he said he was gonna do. So it's really important to understand the difference between a principle and a promise. What we have here, if you do good, then good things will happen to you. No one will harm you. That's not a promise. That's a principle. It's generally true. And there are exceptions to it. And these guys are living out the exception to it, right? 90% of the time it's true. But what about the 10% of the time when it's not true? What about the 10% of the time when you do what's good and you're treated badly? Why is it that sometimes that happens? Well, a few reasons, you know. One reason is some people in the world are just cruel. Some people are cruel. It's like that, that guy in the Batman movie said, right? Albert or whatever the butler's name is. He told Batman, he said, there are some people who just want to watch the world burn. That's true. In other cases, it's, it's not because people are cruel that they hurt you. In some cases, it's because people are kind of clueless or clumsy, right? In other words, they aren't trying to hurt you. They're, they're not being malicious. They're just not very self-aware. Maybe they're completely self-absorbed, right? And you're just kind of the collateral damage of their self-absorption. See, so look at verse 14. It says this, but even if you should suffer for doing what's right, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. That word blessed, it's a great word that's found throughout the Bible. And it's a word which, which is really hard to translate. And, uh, and translators in different languages and even in English translate it different ways at different times. The, the word is the Greek word makarios. It's the same word Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you if others revile you, etc. You know, it's a word, it's actually a word that is most often used for happy, right? It, it's directly translates as happy. It's the word makarios, right? So you will be blessed if you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed, happy. Another way that this can be translated is favored, favored by God. In other words, he's saying this, if you suffer for doing what is right, you will be blessed. You'll be happy. I'll be happy if I suffer for doing what's right. I'll be favored by God if I do suffer for what's doing, doing what's right. See, this is the paradox. Remember, that's our second point, the paradox of the Christian life. And it's this, the paradox of the Christian life is that we can be blessed, happy, favored at the same time that we're suffering. You can be blessed and happy and favored at the same time that you're suffering. See, Paul the Apostle talks about this paradox in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, it's an interesting letter, right? Like Paul was writing to certain people who were going around teaching something that we call power theology, or sometimes it's called a prosperity gospel, right? Power theology, prosperity gospel, whatever you call it, it's basically this, that they were saying that, hey, if you're right with God and you do all the right things, right, and you do what God expects of you, then your life will be free of problems. You will be successful in your work. You will be wealthy monetarily. You'll never be sick and you will never have any problems. And if you do have problems, those kinds of problems, well, that must be a sign that there's something wrong with you spiritually, that God isn't with you, that God doesn't support you. Maybe you're not very spiritual. Maybe there's something wrong in your life. And Paul the Apostle was like, all right, hang on a second. First of all, that's not even true. I mean, let's not forget this, right? That this whole Christianity thing that we're doing, it all began when an innocent man died for doing good, didn't he? It all began with the best person who's ever lived, the most perfect, most holy, most spiritual person who ever lived. And he what? He suffered. He died, even though he never did anything wrong. So that's straight out, okay? But not only is this kind of thinking wrong and, and you know, basically wrong, right? It's, he says it's also dangerous. It's dangerous to think this way. Here's why. Because it leads to two things. It, it will always lead to one or two things. You end up riding the roller coaster, right? Uh, the roller coaster is this, pride 
and despair. Pride and despair. When things are going well in your life, you're patting yourself on the back. You're feeling like you're better than others. It fills you with pride because it's all about you, right? You, you can pat yourself on the back because you're so good. That's why things are going well for you. And when they're not, again, it's that low point in the roller coaster. It's despair. Oh, what am I doing wrong? Why is God mad at me? Etc. right? So it leads to pride and despair. But here's what Paul says about the paradox of the Christian life there in 2 Corinthians. I love this. He says this, He says, we are treated as imposters, and yet we are true. We are treated as unknown, and yet we are well known. By God, of course, right? As dying, and yet behold, we live. As punished, and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to live in that tension, the paradox of the Christian life. Even in the midst of suffering, you can be blessed, happy, favored by God. Why? Because these things are taking place on two different planes. Two different planes, the material and the spiritual. And in Christ, we've been made alive spiritually. And the spiritual realm is no less real than the physical realm. In fact, in some cases, you might say that it is more real because it will last forever. And so we live in this tension, in this paradox, where we can be blessed, happy, favored, even when we're suffering, because our blessing exists on a different plane, where it's untouched by this world or the circumstances of this life. Peter told us in chapter one, our treasure is secure. It is kept in heaven for us. In other words, other people here on earth, they can't touch your blessing because they didn't give it to you. It's not kept here where moth and rust can destroy. It's kept up there where thieves can't break in and steal. They can't touch your joy. Nothing in this life can touch the source of your joy because it's outside of these things on this plane. See, the paradox of the Christian life is that you can be blessed, happy, favored, even in the midst of your suffering. And when you get that, when the gospel sinks in from your head down into your heart, when you really take hold of it, you know what it does? It gives you a bulletproof soul, a bulletproof soul. Because of the hope that we have in Jesus, you can have a bulletproof soul. soul. No matter what this world throws at you, whether it's sickness, hardship, suffering, conflicts, none of it can touch your soul. See, that's why the early Christians like Peter and Paul and so many others whose names we don't even know, they were able to endure hardship and suffering, slander, persecution, sickness, the worst that this life has to offer, and they were able to do it with joy and peace in their hearts that was overflowing. See, in verse 14, Peter told us that one of the things the gospel does in your life is that it sets you free from fear. It sets you free from fear. You remember that time in, in Matthew chapter 10? I love this story. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and they're, they're walking, and Jesus tells his disciples, guys, don't be afraid of people. And they're like, what do you mean? He's like, don't be afraid of people. They're like, what do, you, what do you mean? He says, you know what people can do? The worst they can do is kill you. And they're like, well, yeah, that's exactly what we're afraid that they're gonna do. That's pretty much it, right? That is what we're afraid. And he says, yeah, they can kill you, but they can't touch your soul. They can't get to the real you. They can kill this body, but they can't touch the soul. Therefore, don't fear them, but fear God. Fear God who can deal with your soul and your body, right? They can't touch the real you. I love this, this verse from Amazing Grace, my favorite verse in the, the old hymn, right? It says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieve. That's what grace does, right? It realigns your fears. It teaches you to fear God, but not fear anything else. Most of us, we fear the wrong things, right? But the gospel reorients our fear. 
And at the same time, right, we stop, we stop fearing people and circumstances. When we understand God's love and God's grace, the blessing and favor that he gives you in Jesus, it makes you bold like a lion. Think about a lion walking on the savannah. He's not afraid of nothing, right? He doesn't even have to hide, ever. See, the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, it gives you real boldness to live this life because your life, your real life is hidden with God in Christ. And so the circumstance of this life, whether good or bad, they don't touch who you are at the core, the real you, your real life. So the paradox of the Christian life is that you can be blessed even when you're suffering. You can have deep-rooted, unshakable joy in the depths of your soul even when your life is hard. You can know that you're favored by God even when your circumstances are less than ideal. And there's a freedom that comes with that. There's a freedom that knows that, hey, there are some things that I can control, but there are a lot of things that I can't, but they are not out of control. They're in the hands of a God who is sovereign and powerful and who loves me. See, two other things that you can control, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord and be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the re- reason for the hope that you have. And yet do it with gentleness and respect. So there are a lot of things that are outside of your control, but here are two things that you can control. Honor Christ in your heart. Make him number one, supreme. Give him that highest place of loyalty and allegiance in your heart. And the other thing here that you can control is this. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. This harkens back to what Peter talked about in chapter one, how we have a living hope in Jesus, a living hope, and this living hope causes us to live differently. It changes your whole outlook on life. And as you're walking around in this life with this hope and it causes you to live differently, people are gonna notice. They won't be able to not notice that there's something different about you. And there are gonna be opportunities that that presents when people ask you, hey, what's different about you? Why do you think this way? Why do you do the things that you do? What, what is different about you? And he says, so be prepared to give an answer, to tell people about the hope that you have. Here's the thing, remember this. You won't be prepared if you don't prepare, right? It's simple, right? You won't be prepared if you don't prepare. Let me ask you, how many of you, like when you were in school, there was a time when you had to give a book report on a book, but you hadn't read the book, right? Do you guys remember that, right? Like you're like, I don't know, The Great Gatsby, right? And you're like, you, the teacher's like, well, Nick, what did you think of the book? And I'm like, um, you know, I loved it. It was so good. There's so many things. It's hard to put my finger on one thing because it was all so good. I love the plot. The plot was just so uh, you know, dense, and uh, the character development was just so rich. I loved them all. And, you know, what was your favorite part? You know, who was the character you like? Oh, I just can't put my finger on any one of them. They were all so good, right? And I think that for some of us, right, if you were asked tomorrow at work about your faith and about why you're a Christian and why do you go to church, what do you do? For some of us, it's going to come out kind of like that book report about the book that you didn't actually read because you're not prepared, Right, And you kind of just stumble your way through it and, and not really say anything concrete or compelling. And so I want you to do this. I want you to think through this question. Think it through. What would you say if someone asked you to tell, asked you to tell them about your faith? What would you say if someone asked about your faith? Why Christianity? Why Jesus? Maybe you're going to be talking to somebody at work tomorrow and somehow through the conversation, the opportunity is going to present itself for you to talk about the hope that you have in Jesus, why you believe it, what you believe. So always be ready. You won't be prepared unless you prepare. So prepare. As sojourners on a mission, it's good for us to think through what are some of the things that that 
are hurdles for people when it comes to Christianity? What are some of the things that they might think is a barrier, which maybe it's not a real barrier and you can help remove it by having gracious words and thoughtful words? You know, this is one of the reasons why we do some of the things we do here at Whitefield. It's why we do our school of ministry to help train you to give an answer and to be prepared to be used by God in this world, to understand what you believe and why you believe it and how to talk about it. It's one of the reasons why we do our, our uh, study guide for our community groups the way we do it is to help you grow, not just so you understand your faith, but so that you can share it with others. Another thing you have control of, verse 16, he says, live with a good conscience. So when you're slandered, people might revile your name, but in the end, there'll be nothing to base it on. Verse 17, he says, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. Did you catch that? He said that quick phrase, didn't he? That sometimes it can actually be God's will for you to suffer. It can actually be God's will for you to suffer. Now, how can that be? How could it ever be God's will for one of his children to suffer? And that leads us to our final point in this section, our third point, which is this, the power. Look at what he says in verse 18. This will be our final verse. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, all of Christianity is based on the fact that God allowed an innocent man, Jesus, to suffer so that guilty people, that's us, could go free. So Jesus, the Son of God, suffered according to the will of God in order to accomplish God's plan of bringing us to him. Is an interesting thing that caught my attention this week, and that's this, that if you look back to chapter one, Peter has this phrase that he uses to describe the gospel, and here's what it is. In verse, chapter one, verse 11, he says this, the gospel is the sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed. The sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed. See, here in verse 18, Peter's talking about Jesus' sufferings, but if you look to the end of the chapter, he talks about Jesus' glory that he received his glory that he received. Now he's resurrected. He's seated at the right hand. All authority and power has been put under his feet. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus suffered according to the will of God. And that suffering wasn't in vain. Rather, that suffering resulted in glory, not just for him, but also for us. And here's the good news. If your faith is in Jesus and he is in you, then that same dynamic is true in your life as well. See, the promise of the gospel is not that if you trust in Jesus that you won't have any problems in your life. No, look at Jesus. He was right with God and he had problems, didn't he? He had conflicts. He was wronged by people. The promise of the gospel is not that if your faith is in Jesus, you won't have any problems. Rather, the promise of the gospel is that in your trials and your sufferings, they will not be in vain, but God will use them for good. That's what that famous verse says in Romans 8, 28. That we know that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. See, in Christ, you can know that your suffering is not in vain, that God redeems it and he uses it for good. And one day he will bring you into glory that is not even worth comparing with the sufferings you currently endure. And what that does is this. When you get that, it gives you the power to live boldly and to love radically. Live boldly and love radically. Where do you get the power to forgive others and love even when you've been wrong? It comes from Jesus who loved me and he loved you in that way. It comes from Jesus who not only suffered for doing good, but his suffering was not in vain. The power to do these things comes from Jesus who's risen and exalted and not only sits at the right hand of the Father, but by his spirit, he dwells in those who have embraced the gospel by faith. And if that's you, right, what does that mean? That the power to do these things comes from him living his life in you. 
See, there's a lot more in these final verses that I don't want to rush through, and so we're going we're gonna to wait for next week to go into depth on some of those things. But for today, I want to leave you with this. If you have embraced Jesus and by faith embraced what he has done for you, then you can live boldly and you can love radically even when you are wronged. See, not only is it what he did for you, but if the gospel is true, and it is, right? If the gospel is true, and it is, then you have nothing to lose. You know that? You have nothing to lose. And therefore, you have nothing to fear. Because your life, your real life, is hidden with God in Christ, and now he lives in you. And so look to Jesus and live as a sojourner on a mission. Amen? Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you lived that way for us. You lived in this world, though you were not of this world, but you didn't live here as a tourist or as a prisoner. Lord, you lived here as a missionary. Lord, help us that we would have that same heart. Lord, fill us with that kind of loving compassion towards each other. Lord, when we are wronged, Lord, that is the opportunity for us to get to live out the kind of love that you have poured into our hearts by your spirit. So Lord, I pray that we would do that. I pray we wouldn't shirk away from these things, but that we'd press into them. And that as a result, Lord, we would grow. Lord, we pray that you bless our body. We pray that like you said in your word, that we would be united and that we would have the mind of Christ. And Lord, may that be true of us. And may we be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. And we pray that people would ask, Lord, that as they see our lives, they would see something different and they would ask. And that at that moment, we would be ready. And Lord, we ask that you'd use us and do good work through us in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.